And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show Weekend Review. It's been a weekend for the coronation of world champions. One in Los Angeles for the sister club of Arsenal and the Colorado Rapids. One in Abu Dhabi for the sister club of dark Russian money? Chelsea! Elsewhere, the Serie A title race remained on the boil. Bayern Munich got a dressing down on the road and the band-aids have started to peel off the cracks at Barcelona. Joining me today, my name's Ryan Bailey, by the way. Joining me is a man who would never star in a Super Bowl halftime show commercial for cryptocurrency. Hello, Taylor Rockwell. Hello. Uh, I mean, I guess like all the other actors, if I were paid probably like the GDP of a small country, I would. I'm I'm assuming that's how they got Larry David. I saw somebody tweeting that Larry David proves you can never have enough money, it seems. Yeah, guy um, who made a show about nothing um, makes a commercial about a currency that's worth nothing was the best tweet I saw as well, Taylor. But stuff. we're all going to miss out. We're all going to make uh, historically bad choices just like Larry David did. It was a good commercial. It still makes me feel like crypto is trying to like bully me into getting on board, which maybe it is. Maybe that's what it has to do. But uh, Larry David being wrong throughout history didn't quite get me there. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure what the moral was of that commercial, if I'm honest, uh, Taylor. But uh, anyway, joining us also is a man who stayed up late on a Sunday night, very late on a Sunday night, Scottish time, to watch another championship for another Beckham in Los Angeles and to admire his favourite French team, La Rams. Hello, Graham Ruthven. <laughs> Hello. I did stay up late. I'm getting ready for the new MLS season, which is the way that tends to go on a, on a Sunday night. And as you say, Beckham is uh, is back in my Sunday night viewing a few years after he left LA and my sporting vision. There's another one that's back. <laughs> Graham, it's I, I, I've been reminded this is my first Super Bowl outside of uh, outside of the states for many, many, many years, mm-hmm. and it's quite an undertaking to watch it from Europe. Um. Well, maybe from Italy, from what you say about Italy, I don't know. Was it even on <laughs> TV in Italy? It's on Fubo with my VPN. Yes, Graham. Right, okay. Um, I mean, in the UK, it's fairly big, like it's on BBC One, and, but it is on at half 11 at night, and I'm not sure how many people are staying up besides yeah. me to watch that until half three in the morning. So, Are people, are people in the UK, like, what, what is the attitude towards American football these days? Is it still sort of this weird, like, outlier thing that people are curious no. about, or is there more interest in it just as a, as a sport? I think there's I think there's loads of interest in in the UK in the NFL. Like obviously having the games here has helped. Uh, having like two three games in London has helped a lot. But I don't think I think like my mum will ask me about it today, which I always I always think the mum test is a good way of gauging if something has hit the mainstream. If my mum will ask me about it, so like the Super Bowl definitely registers here, and as I say, it's on BBC and um, yeah, I think so when there. There's talk that like in 2026, there's going to be a Super Bowl in London. I don't know how viable that it's would be. It's going to start at midnight. 
<laughs> I was playing the game last night of who the halftime show is going to be in the UK. It's going to be like Take That or Blue, isn't it? It's going to be something oh, absolutely dreadful. Robbie is Williams. That- Let's let's not let that be the case. How are, how are you all allowed to play our sport? But when Chris Armas plays yours or coaches yours, he's called Ted Lasso and mocked from afar. <laughs> that doesn't seem fair. It's not fair. But I, I wrote a piece for the Guardian about how the nuance of that that show was not going to be taken into account when insults were made of American no. soccer yeah. coaches in the yeah. future. Yeah. And everyone told me I was wrong. Yeah. And that, oh no, they're going to take into account how Ted Lasso is actually a good guy. And I was like, they're not at all. No. They're just going to call every American Ted Lasso. <laughs> and that's yep. what's happening. Yeah. Hey, more, good stuff. More on Chris and Ralph later in the show. One of many draws we're going to talk about from this weekend's action. Before we get there, Taylor, I have to ask, there are a lot of good Super Bowl ads. Um, I've caught up on all the ads. Uh, I enjoyed the Larry David one we spoke about. I enjoyed the Uber Eats where Cousin Greg just ate lots of weird things. Yes. Uh, there was a Scientology ad. Okay, cool. And um, what? surely the one that pulled at the heartstrings was Meadow Soprano recreating the Sopranos opening in an electric truck table. I got real nervous about that. I'm not going to lie. Because I was I was 95% sure that they weren't like announcing a reboot starring her as like the mafia lawyer or something. But I was oh, but kind of nervous, given the way Many Saints of Newark went, that this was going to be some reboot. Instead, it was just a, a, a commercial for Chevy, which I guess Tony did drive. But na- then I'm I'm thinking, like, is that? The nostalgia you all are going for is like, remember that mobster who killed a bunch of people that we all loved? <laughs> like, look at his kids now. They're hugging. Buy our yeah. car. Yeah, his carbon footprint isn't so bad now. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's true. That's true. I forgot. He did he drive like a Tahoe or something, didn't he? Yeah. yeah. So maybe there is the link there. You're quite right, Tato. You're quite right. But I thought that got me in the feels. I've already read several analyses this morning of, oh, does this mean she, she's the boss now and oh, they're going to reboot it? Uh, that's yeah. what I was worried about. I was genuinely concerned. I like that, like, Last year, I think it was like Bruce Springsteen became a cowboy briefly. So at least they didn't go like like that route and have Tony Soprano as like a hologram driving around Wyoming in a Jeep or something. I, at least it was Meadow. And I and I love the subtle nod to her parking at the very end of it. That was pretty good that she had no one near her when she parked on that street. No parallel parking for Meadow Soprano. There you go. I'm going to pull this back to soccer in just a moment. I'm going to do it with this one final question for you both before we get to the weekend's action. Ryan, you haven't um, finished The Sopranos yet, have you? I'm just up to the end of season three. I want those Uh, bonus. Okay. That joke will make a lot more sense when you finish The Sopranos. Okay. Gotcha. I'll put that in the locker. Thank you very much. I hope that wasn't a spoiler. Um, So we had a great halftime show. Universal acclaim for this halftime show. Uh, I very much enjoyed it. I think it was made for someone exactly my age. Uh, It was wonderful. Uh, Joe Lowry not with us today, by the way. He hasn't forgotten about Dre because he was born too late to know who he is in the first (laughs) place, I believe. Uh, Hello, Joe, if you're listening today. My question for you both, Graham, I'll come to you first. Mm -hmm. Let's say we have a Champions Champions League final. We have a halftime show, like a big full-on production like we saw at the Super Bowl. Who yeah. is your dream act to be in the Champions League final halftime show? And why is it Pitbull, Graham? Go on. <laughs> Pitbull. It's definitely not Pitbull. Um, I don't know. I feel like for the Champions League final or in football, we want to go down the novelty route rather than something that is actually good. So like someone doing sea shanties or something. Oh, I don't nice. know. That would be quite funny. <laughs> I'd go for Cotton Eye Joe myself. How about you, Taylor? Yeah. <laughs> Oh, man. I mean, Cotton Eye Joe and Sea Shanties. I don't know how I can improve upon that. Uh, I really enjoy, I've talked about it previously, there's the South American tournament where they have the halftime act or is like a band from each of the teams that are competing from their like home cities. And I think that's a really cool way to do it so that you get 
sort of a blend of the different cultures, and especially with the Champions League where you're theoretically getting teams from different countries. I think that could be cool. And my generic answer, it seems to me that the Killers are universally accepted as being an okay band to do things, both mm. in the United States and in Europe. So I could see the Killers being a good Champions League halftime show as well. They did an NFL thing where they were on the rooftop in Vegas last year, I seem to remember. Ah, oh, that's never a good idea. I think only the Beatles have ever done that successfully. Every other time someone is doing something on a rooftop. And the B-sharps. And, That's of right. course, the B-sharps, yes. Where George <laughs> Harrison you, famously Thank rolled you, down his window and said, it's been done when he saw the B-sharps <laughs> uh, performing on the roof. Anywho, shall we get to uh, one of the other world champions that was crowned this weekend? Not the LA Rams. We're talking about Chelsea here in the Club World Cup. Chelsea 2, Palmeiras 1, the Champions League winners of Europe against the Copa Libertadores winners from Sao Paulo. This was at the Mohammed bin Zayed Stadium in Abu Dhabi, named after the half-brother of Man City's owner, Sheikh Manzur, don't you know? Fun fact for you there. Um, Kai Havertz making the difference in this 117th minute penalty after a handball from Paul Luan, who was sent off not long afterwards. It was Romelu Lukaku who gave Chelsea the lead with a rather powerful header before Rafael Viga equalised from the spot in regular time. Uh, big win for Chelsea. They were last in this game 10 years ago and they lost to Brazilian opposition from Sao Paulo to Corinthians. Uh, now they can finally call themselves world champions just like them Rams, Taylor. Um, why don't we go first? Uh, there's a lot of a lot of press, Taylor, around uh, Dave Azpilicueta, Cesar Azpilicueta who has now won everything, basically, with Chelsea. Um, and he got the assist for the penalty in quite a unique way. Would you, would you like me to explain it, or do you want to take the lead, Taylor? Yeah, you, you got it. So basically, um, the penalty, he Aspilicueta grabs the ball, acts like he's going to take it, and he takes all the heat from the opposition. And uh, there's Chelsea being credited from doing their homework in this respect, because Palmeiras players tend to crowd the referee. And that's not unique to Palmeiras, because lots of other teams do it. Chelsea do it, in fact. And they and you see like Liverpool do it all the time. When someone's got the ball and they're ready to take a penalty, there's that basketball-style psych-out that you try and yep. do on the penalty player, the penalty taker. So Aspilicueta's got the ball, and then at the last second, just when everyone's cleared out of the box, Things have calmed down. The penalty is about to be taken. Casually hands it off to Kai Havertz, who um, converts the penalty. And he scored in the Champions League final as well, didn't he? Now I think about it. He's a, he's a big pressure man. But as hmm. um putting in a good performance there for handing a ball to someone, Taylor. Do, do we know, because I, I haven't been able to figure it out, do we know if Havertz knew that he was taking it and Aspilicueta just drew the fire? Or yeah. was it still the case that it was Aspilicueta and then last second he was like, never mind, it's you, you take it. I believe, as Pedro has said, he like whispered to him, "You're taking this like before okay. the, the hubbub started." All right, and hopefully they're on like a connected enough uh, communication level for Havertz to have understood that and not just been completely flummoxed by it. But it seems like he <laughs> understood exactly what was happening because it was a really calm penalty. But I think a necessary move from Davis Pelicueta because yeah, Palmeiras were in his face, around his face, near his face, near the penalty spot. They were doing everything they could to make him have to think about it, to kind of get in his head, to talk to him a little bit, to make him second guess. And I do think... Any level of that does have an impact because if you say, I'm going left, like, or if you say, like, oh, go left, he never dives that way, it really does just throw chaos into it. And I think that always benefits the goalkeeper because anytime the attacker is approaching it, I equate it with, uh, like, walking down the aisle and being like, ah, worst case scenario, I get divorced. If you're running up to the penalty, like, worst case scenario, I miss it. Ah, I think I'm going to go this direction. I don't think you're in the best headspace. So I think it was definitely a credit to Aspilicueta for drawing that fire to give uh, Havertz just a little bit of calm before he ends up taking and scoring. Is, is that a thing to walk down the aisle and think, worst case scenario, I'm getting divorced? 
No, I think that was like I read that once as like like the most obvious marriage advice or something like that. Like things to do at your wedding is like don't think that way. And I was like, thanks, blog that I won't be reading anymore because that was never on the table, and I don't know why it would be. Uh, Graham, by the way, happy Valentine's Day. Hope you've made some eye contact with your wife today. <laughs> um, we both Quite forgot not. to leave each other cards, so oh. um, that that was not a a good start. But we were both in the same boat, so bless you. I got away with that. <laughs> <laughs> nice one, wow. Graham. Uh, wow. How about Palmeiras? They didn't quite get away with this one. Very important game for them, it seems. It is taken much more seriously, perhaps, than yeah. it is in Europe, in South America. Um, apparently, I was reading up on them, Graham, and they hadn't won the this tournament since 1951 when it was known as the Copa Rio. And fans of Corinthians and uh, Santos, uh, other Sao Paulo teams, they chant, Palmeiras Nalto Mundial. Pa- Palmeiras don't have a World Cup. It's very important for, uh, for, for teams in that region. And you could see it. We could hear it in the stadium. There are apparently 50. 15,000 yep. Brazilian fans there, creating quite an atmosphere. Um, but what do we make of Palmeiras, Graham? I mean, they sat reasonably deep. I don't believe Chelsea had any offside decisions, which they had Timo Werner you know, for a while. And, you know, that's, that seemed quite rare. And there was a decent amount of gamesmanship from them. What did you make of them? I thought this, this was a, a tricky matchup for Chelsea and that Palmeiras were quite happy to concede possession to them and then hit out on the, on the counter-attack. And we've seen numerous times this season that Chelsea can sometimes struggle to break down low defensive blocks. And Palmeiras, for most of this match, had the dis- discipline to, to sit deep and they weren't tempted to kip, commit too many players forward, which might have been the, might have been the case. And um, I even thought in the first half on the counter-attack, Palmeiras maybe had the the better of the of the opportunities you know Chelsea were were piling players into the opposition half and that left space for the for Palmeiras to exploit and I thought in terms of goal threat they they maybe looked the more potent side in in the first half and I did think there was an irony in how Palmeiras for a lot of this game and obviously they ended up losing I think primarily because Chelsea just had more to throw at them in terms of individual quality but there was an irony in how Palmeiras for much of this game they did to Chelsea in this match what Chelsea did to Man City in the Champions League final, which is obviously mm. the game that, that gets Chelsea to the, the Club World Cup. They were compact at the back. They allowed Chelsea to get within 30 yards of the goal. And then that's when they, they applied the press. And when they won the ball, they were quick to release it into the channels. And I wouldn't say it was a long ball game, just like I, I wouldn't say that's how Chelsea played in the Champions League final. But there, there was a directness to um, the approach. And I thought Rafael Vega in particular was was very effective for a lot of the game. He carried a threat. He scores the equaliser from the spot. I was surprised to see him then come off after 76 minutes because it felt like he was maybe the player that was most likely to, to score a second. But I thought, um, you know, even down to the fact that Tuchel, he rattles through three different formations in this game. You know, he starts off with a, a 3-4-3, then they go to a 3-5-2, then it's a 4-2-3-1 in extra time when Chelsea were trying to crank it up a little bit more in extra time because I think they realise a, a penalty shootout, it's not 50-50, 50-50, it's not a lottery as a lot of people say, but it, it does level the playing field and Chelsea are the better team in terms of individual quality. So they probably looked at extra time as the last chance to make that count for something. So they did crank up an extra time, but it felt like Abel Ferreira, the, the Palmeiras manager, in many ways got the better of Tuchel, as I say, demonstrated by how many times Tuchel changed his, his team. And as I say, it was probably just that Chelsea had more to throw at them that that was the difference. I do think, though, that like even with everything Graham has said, and I think everything you said, Graham, was accurate, it still is a big win for Chelsea, not just because they are the world champions. I don't know how much stock we actually put into that. But I had sort of joked that will winning the Club World Cup actually motivate them to come back and play the Champions League again? Or will they think, like, oh, no, if we win, we have to go back and do this all over? And I think it does motivate them. I really do. Um, 
for how hard fought this was and for all the adjustments Chelsea had to make, I think there is an argument that that can kind of bond teams. And if you're defending your teammates or if you're drawing fire so that your teammate can then calmly take a penalty or if you're drawing fouls but not reacting and not giving up cards of your of your own, I think that bonds the team. I think it gives them a sense of purpose and a sense of unity and a sense that we can win these games when push comes to shove. And I have to believe that that helps Chelsea as they come back into the rest of their domestic season and the Champions League as well. I think it will probably end up being a big win, not just because of the silverware, but because of how it might end up sort of catalyzing and unifying this team a bit more. Um, uh, Christian Pulisic getting a medal here, Taylor. Hey. First American in a Club World Cup final, don't you know? Uh, coming off Mason Mount in that sort of number 10-ish position, 100% mm-hmm. dribbles completed, 87% passing, four shots, one key pass, drew the most fouls, and he hit the crossbar as well, didn't he? So he had he had a pretty good one. Mm. Um, there, were, there were a lot of good Chelsea performances, I thought, Taylor. Havertz, obviously, big man for the big occasion. Uh, Lukaku, who was taken off, I was re- reasonably surprised by that. But Timo Werner, I thought, was also... Uh, a difference maker, the, the pace he had, the movement he went when Palmeiras was starting to fade a little bit towards the end. I thought he was quite important as well. But um, what, what did you think, Taylor, about the Chelsea performances individual-wise? I mean, I, I think that was a, a pretty definitive Christian Pulisic performance in that there's lots of good stuff, but it's not quite good enough or great. Like, maybe if he hits the bar, but then it goes in, we're having a different conversation. Uh, <laughs> but that aside, I'm always impressed by that midfield pairing of Kante and Kovacic. For Kovacic being that sort of signing that at the time felt very much an emergency because they had the transfer ban looming, they tried to sign him. I think he was one of the few that they could actually make in that window uh, because he'd been there previously. It felt like, oh, they're just trying to get reinforcements in before they aren't able to sign people. And here we are with him being this incredibly important player to them and the way that he's able to turn under pressure when they're building out and find forward passive, progressive passes that help facilitate attacks, but help play out of pressure, but help retain possession. I think he is always uh, pretty instrumental to what Chelsea wants to do. And N'Golo Conte partnering him certainly uh, helps him look better and helps the team look better. So those two always stand out to me. Thiago Silva stood out a little bit more for the handball uh, and for some other moments in this game. But I think overall, a very good game for Chelsea. Uh, Graham, to take a step back from the Club World Cup, uh, some view it as a, a glorified community shield. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's your take on it? I mean, let's bear in mind the next edition of this competition uh, is going to be the expanded 24-team yeah. edition. It's likely going to be a summer tournament. I don't know how it's going to be organized because the Libertadores is, is decided not in the summer it's, or in the South American summer. So... Um, I don't know how that's going to work or when it's going to be, but it's going to be a bigger thing, at least in terms of the teams participating. Do we, does Europe, and maybe North America as well, not give this tournament the credit it deserves? It's a strange tournament, right? I think we can all agree on that. And that, I'm not saying it doesn't have any value because clearly it does. You know, Chelsea really wanted to win this game. I don't think so much because of the individual merit of the Club World Cup, but they were very much... Their motivation was they wanted to complete their set, basically that they'd won everything in in club football. They lost this game back in 2010 to Corinthians, so there was a little bit of motivation there. Then you have Palmeiras, who clearly wanted to win this game, and and often it feels like the real motivation does come from the South American side. It's their, their one shot at the big European clubs. They have the quality, you know, obviously it's a, it's a shot for the, you know, the CONCACAF teams and the Asian teams as well but they maybe realistically don't have the quality to get the better of the, of the European teams, whereas the, the South, American, South American teams, they do. They do have the, the quality to win those games. So uh, it's not a tournament that doesn't have any value. It just it struggles for a definition. 
I feel. You know, you get you have Chelsea getting drafted into the semi-finals when other teams have played quarter-final games and it, it just very much feel, it has a bit of a feel of an exhibition tournament to it and I do think that an expanded tournament could have some merit but there's 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 difficulties with that as well you know is it going to take place in the middle of the season I've read that it, it might take place right at the end of the season are players going to be motivated for that or at least the European players going to no. be motivated for that if their <laughs> holidays are being delayed and if it's being played between the end of the club season and any major tournaments as well that's going to be tricky um, and then also, you know, what, what, as you say then, there, Ryan, what teams are getting invited? Because all the competitions are played at, all the, con- uh, the continental competitions are played at different times. So, um, yeah. And then all, all, obviously then you've got fixture congestion as well. So is England maybe going to get rid of the, the League Cup? I think if you got rid of one of the cup competitions, maybe that, that could help. But I don't see that happening anytime soon. So it just feels like it's kind of crammed into the schedule with not much definition. And it could be a good tournament, but at the moment, its I don't think it is a good tournament. It's, it's one of those things that feels like it was greenlit off the pitch. Like, famously, the story for Talladega Nights is that it was just pitched as Will Ferrell NASCAR. And they're like, yep, done. Uh, <laughs> it, it just seems like the World Cup, but like the club teams, the best club teams in playing in the summer. How do we lose? And then like that's kind yeah. of it. Like it's, You can see the logic. It's just in terms of why you'd want to do it, you see the logic less so in terms of how they're going to do it or how they make this make sense. Yeah, um, there's there's not much depth depth to it, is it? They're like, no. imagine the World Cup exactly. for clubs. <laughs> yep. And what <laughs> we're going to call it, it, the Club World Cup. <laughs> Graham, you, I love your trailer voice. Yeah, we right? hear this more often. In a world. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine, Taylor, for the casual US soccer fan, this is yep. another thing to go, what is this? How is it different from the Champions League? Why, why are we here? And particularly when it's expanded, it just feels un- it feels su- surplus to requirements, Taylor. Yeah, because I, I agree. And I think that in its present form, you can at least sort of succinctly explain it as like, ah, oh, it's it's the teams that win their their Champions Leagues all end up playing against each other. So the Champions of Europe playing against the Champions of South America is the way it tends to be. Once you start adding in more teams for more reasons, it becomes the Champions League, basically. It's like, it's the Champions of Europe and also the other teams that finished in the top four in their leagues. Like, it, it dilutes it a little bit and does make it a bit harder to understand. I think I think it also lacks when I when I was thinking about it when I was watching the game. What does this tournament lack? It lacks neutral appeal. So you know the Champions League is back tomorrow. My team, uh, funnily enough, Sterling Albion are not in the Champions League, but like I'm very excited Wait, to not? watch those games. I thought it was <laughs> no, you guys versus Atleti. No, is that uh, not happening? It's a five year project. Okay. We're in year uh, one of that project. <laughs> wow. Um, so I'm like excited to watch Champions League games. Excited to watch Premier League games. I am not excited to watch Club World Cup, and I'm, I have no doubt that. Chelsea fans probably did enjoy that game and wanted to win that game and celebrated it just as much as Palmeiras fans would have. But as a neutral, there's very little interest in that tournament. And I feel like that is a key part that it's lacking. Well, Chelsea, congratulations to you. You get to put a gold badge on your slightly ugly jersey. Not in the Premier League. Are they not allowed to do that anymore? No, they're not. It's like the only good thing about the Club World Cup is that patch and the Premier League doesn't allow their teams to do it. Oh, because, yeah, because Liverpool would have had it, right? Ah. Yeah. Wow, I didn't realise that. Oh, well, seems like the Premier League's taking it seriously as well then. Um, when we come back after this break, we're going to talk about the big one in Serie A, Napoli versus Inter. Right back soon. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep. 
You heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. Let's turn our attention from Abu Dhabi to Italy. Milan went top of the league early Sunday morning with a 1-0 home win over troubled Sampdoria. Juventus remain in fourth after rescuing a 1-1 draw at Atalanta. A 90th-minute equaliser from Delilo stopping Atlanta leapfrogging them in the table. Graham, how about that Atlanta, Atalanta goal for the opener? absolutely ridiculous Malinowski the free kick is kind of played to him short and he just rifles it into the top corner and it it goes so high and then dips so dramatically into the top corner as well it's honestly one of the the most astonishing goals of the season so far. It might, it might actually be the goal of the season so far. It's that good. What, what a strike. I mean, we had a couple of good ones we're going to talk about from Germany later on in Bayern Munich's game. But yeah, this was an absolute cracker. Um, did you catch this one in full, Graham? Did you see any uh, any Juve performances we need to discuss? Yeah, I was I was um, switching between this game and the and the Espanol Barcelona game that was on at the same time. I thought it was it was a peculiar game for for Juventus. I do see some progress from them um it is slow progress i think they they might have lost this game in the first half of the season and i know at times it felt like allegri was just throwing on attackers uh in the hope that one of them would do something and then it's ironic then that danilo is the one that that gets the equalizer and snatches a point from this game but i think there is a stronger spine to their team now i thought delict had a very good game in in the first half um, Zakaria doesn't feature in this game which was slightly surprising but even looking at McKenney, I thought he had another good game for Juventus he was the one that was giving them balance and he was supporting the midfield three uh, sorry the attacking three and he was given to Bala supply line and he was giving them protection as well he creates the most chances six chances over the over the 90 minutes so I just feel like he's becoming more and more important to this Juventus team so Delict, McKenney, and then Vlavic has just given them a, a lot more purpose in their play he doesn't score in this game but they just they just look like a stronger side that's maybe not going to lose as many games and they're not the the complete product yet but i think they're going to be better in the second half of this season uh good I don't know if that's good, Graham, but thank you for the roundup. <laughs> Regardless, the big one from Calcio this weekend, Napoli won Inter Milan won. Uh, one point between these two teams at the start of the day, and that is how it remained. Of course, Inter um, temporarily retaining top spot before Milan played on Sunday. Good to see some more big production and investment from CBS in this one. Sending, it was, I think Aaron West was on the sidelines for this one, if I remember correctly. Uh, we had uh, goals from Insigne, future Toronto man, of course, um, passing Maradona's record for all-time goal scoring with 100 16 with his uh, penalty for the opener and Edin Dzeko getting it back for Inter. Taylor, this one was, uh, it was, it was a game of two halves, to use a cliche. All yeah. Napoli, mostly in the opening half an hour and Inter showing some pretty impressive fight to get it back in the second half, I'd say. Yeah, it, a weird comparison, but it's like when Guns N' Roses first came back and Axl Rose was very out of shape and tried to do the same stuff. And after the first song, you could hear him like wheezing into the microphone. <laughs> that was basically Napoli at points in this game that like they come out 
just so aggressive from the jump, and Osimen is running everywhere and causing problems, and there's a moment when I think all three inter-center backs are going to be sent off at various points for having to bring him down, and they get the goal off of the, the penalty, off the VAR decision, which is Osimen like, making those runs and just being lightning quick, and I think Napoli really flummoxed Inter, and I think it's a credit to them that they go in at halftime, uh, Inzaghi makes some adjustments, I think mostly Inter just came out and played their game and were more confident on the ball, sort of delaying less, making unnecessary passes uh, less often, and instead they get the the equalizer pretty early in that second half. And it, with that said, it did end up feeling like in the final 30 minutes this was going to be one-to-one, and everyone was just kind of okay with it. There's some late moments here and there, but for the most part, I think after sort of Inter were able to adjust to what Napoli were doing, which was high pressing, which was sitting at least one, if not two defenders on Dzeko wherever he went. So there was never really that outlet. They front and followed him for most of the first half. I think Inter struggled, gave up the ball a lot, weren't as good in possession as we've often seen. But once they were able to calm down, figure out Napoli a little bit, I think they grew into the game. And in some ways, I think Napoli fortunate to get the point. In other ways, I think both teams okay with the point. Taylor, um, I think I've become a Denzel Dumfries stan, to use yeah, the man. kid's language. Um, we talked about him last week in terms of the matchup he had against Milan, and he was very good there. And since, uh, since the Euros, where he was very impressive there as well, I think I've really started to pay attention to him, and he was impressive once again. Yeah, and kind of indestructible at the same time. Like He seems to just be able to run through tackles and run through players and get right back up and keep going. We've talked about it before. I will say it again. I I cannot believe how good of a of an impression of Atraf Hakimi he is doing. Same thing for Edin Dzeko. When you lose Lukaku and replace him with Dzeko, when you lose Hakimi and replace him with Denzel Dumfries, it felt like, okay, they're going to be a step down. They're going to try to do some of the same things, but ultimately they won't be quite as good. And Dumfries just never fails to impress. He is always running. He is always taking people on. But even on the defensive side, I see him dropping in to kind of cover the flank, but then he pops out if there's an open midfielder. He'll move further up if the fullback stays deeper. He has so many different defensive responsibilities and then so much attacking creativity and involvement. I think he's just instrumental to everything Inter want to do. Mm. Graham, how about Napoli? Uh, Some good performances on their team. I thought... uh, uh... Osiman was very good. He sounds like an mm-hmm. Irish sailor to me, Osiman. His name does make me <laughs> chuckle. I do like that a lot. But um, a, a move involving Denzel Dumfries, Koulibaly, that Bobby Moore-esque tackle uh, in this game was wonderful as well. Koulibaly having a really good game. Um, but yeah, would you concur with Taylor and I's assessment that they faded a little bit in the second half? Yeah, and I, and I would agree with your assessment, Taylor, that I, both teams were, were quite happy with a, a point out of this. Um, I don't know whether it's maybe a better point for Napoli using my like making assessment my, myself you know both teams seem quite happy with it but assessing it myself I don't know if it's maybe a slightly better point for Napoli than than Inter I don't know if you can ever call a draw a statement result but I, I do think it's quite impressive for Napoli that we're now into February and Napoli who nobody really expected to challenge for the title this season they are they're still in the picture I know everyone has talked about the two Milan clubs and even Juventus with some of the signings they've made you know they're they're seven eight nine points behind people saying can they make a late run but Napoli are still there they've had a few of their key players out injured you know Koulibaly was away at AFCON Osimhen's just coming back from injury and he was probably the best player in Serie A for the first third of the season and yet they're still, as I say, they're still sticking around. So I wonder if now we're going to see them accelerate again in the second half of the season. Koulibaly, as I say, he's back from AFCON. I thought Zeko gave him a, a, a challenging match. Obviously, that's quite a physical 
um, contest for the two of them. But I thought Koulibaly dealt with him well. Um, who scored had him as their man of the match. He won a lot of the aerial duels. Um, and then Asiman, he had the better of the Vraj all the way through this match. He wins the penalty in the early exchanges. And he just gives Napoli that sort of attacking apex that they've lacked when he has been out injured. And as you say, Taylor, he fades and Napoli fade in general. But once he gets those fitness levels up, he'll be able to do it for the full 90 minutes. And his sh- his finishing could be a bit sharper still. There's a couple of good opportunities in this game and he kind of hits the side netting or, or his shot mm-hmm. is saved by the goalkeeper. But I do wonder if Napoli are just going to step up a little bit with those two players back in their team over the next few weeks. And it was uh, De Vrij who came back into this team, of course, Graham, and um, gave away the penalty uh, in this game as well. Uh, mm-hmm. in, in our uh, show notes, I think you've been inspired by a Super Bowl halftime performer because you've written, <laughs> yeah. will the real Laura Martinez please stand up, please stand up, please stand up. <laughs> oh, I think you might have uh, <laughs> uh, exaggerated there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> added a few lyrics there. But yes, um, Latara Martinez, has, I think it's fair to say, has been slightly disappointing this season. Zeko has been an in- instant success for Inter, um, but the criticism of his strike partner, Martinez, it is mounting, and I thought this was another underwhelming performance from him. Yes, he provides the cross for Zeko's equaliser, so it wasn't a completely fruitless game for him. But he's now gone nine games without a penalty goal. Before that, he went on a seven-game run without a... Uh, sorry, I should be say a non-penalty goal. He's on a run of nine games without a, a non-penalty goal. And before that, he was on a seven-game run without a non-penalty goal. So you're talking about one non-penalty goal in 16 games. And for a striker of his calibre, I'm not sure that's good enough. The, the problem for Martinez is he needs space to run and he needs space to move forward from a deeper area of the pitch and dribble... And last season, Conte ball allowed him to do that. But at the moment, Inter are very much, their strategy is to get the the defenders and the midfielders to carry the ball forward. And that means Martinez is often standing there waiting for a pass or a cross. And that sort of approach suits Zeko. That's maybe why he's thriving in this team, but it doesn't suit Martinez. And so I do think he's a little bit of a stylistic misfit. He still offers a lot in terms of his work rate, his movement. He does open up space for Zeko. He draws defenders away from Zeko. So he he is contributing, I think, to how well Zeko's doing this season. But in terms of his own numbers and his own attacking output in general, he's been slightly disappointing. Uh, Graham, you used the phrase stylistic misfit there, which makes me think of Napoli's kits here. What's what was happening there? Are they the actual home kits with the flames on them and stuff? Yeah. So I was I was very excited when I heard that Emporio Armani were going to do I think they're doing something like twenty five different shirts for Napoli this season. Ugh. But but about two of them have been good. <laughs> the rest of them have been really bad and this is this is one of the worst ones, so yeah, not not a fan of what Napoli are doing this season. And it's such a shame because they had Kappa before and that was one of the, the best Kit uh, relationships, Kappa and Napoli, and that is now a thing of the past. Uh, so, a fan's expected to buy all of these twenty-five shirts. Is that how it's going to work? I think they expect me to buy all of those twenty-five <laughs> shirts, but I haven't bought any so far because they've not been that good. Oh, so boy. they need to step it up. Step it up, Napoli. Uh, Taylor, anything more on this one? Do you see either of these teams uh, ending up with a scudetto at the end of this uh, um, this this season? Yeah, I think either one. I think Graham's made a really good argument about Napoli. I think Inter as well could do the same because they've done it previously. And I think, like as we've talked about, there hasn't been as big of a drop-off as maybe was expected. So I think, yeah, both teams, probably why they're both okay with the one-to-one draw and why they're both going to be... Uh, fighting and kicking and clawing to get their way to the top of the table. We'll see what ends up happening. 
We shall indeed. A 1-1 draw here in uh, the hottest title race in Europe. We'll come back after this quick break. We're going to be talking about the Premier League, La Liga, the Bundesliga, and much more. Back shortly. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer, if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. Let's take it to the Premier League. Taylor's favorite league to talk about because his favorite team are in there and they've drawn once again, Taylor. Man United won, Southampton won in the Battle of the Ralphs, the Renick and the Hasenhutl. Uh Bruno having a nice swig at James Ward Prowse, which didn't quite um, work out for anybody involved. Um, it was a Sancho opener, Taylor, with Che Adams getting the equalizer. A lovely one touch finish across the goal from Mr. Adams there. I'm just going to let you have at it, Taylor. Yeah, fun fun game as always. Third straight game uh, that they were leading at halftime end up drawing. Obviously, the Borough one ends up being a loss in penalties. Uh, 64 shots on goal, 27 against, still not taking their chances. Lots and lots of ink spilled about this one. Many, many words said about this one. I think my favorite one uh, comes from Match of the Day when they were discussing it, and it's because they were talking about Southampton and how Southampton have such high game intelligence, that was the thing that stood out to me. That seems to be the major thing that's lacking with this Manchester United team right now is is in-game intelligence. That I, I do think Rangnick can give them tactics, can give them instruction, and whether or not they buy into it, that is an issue, but a separate issue for the purposes of this conversation. But I think you can see the players trying to work it out in-game, in that moment, and there's not a lot of fluidity. There's not a lot of automatic passing and knowing exactly where your teammates are going to be or roughly where your teammates are going to be. If I'm receiving a ball in defeat, I know Luke Shaw's making this overlapping run. I know this person's dropping into space, so when I turn, I've got an option to my left, an option to my right. Instead, it tends to be, uh, I'm not quite sure I'm going to lay it off, and then the center back is going to pass it, and they're going to play it into Scott McTominay, who's going to turn and pass it laterally, and it's just really slow, and there doesn't seem to be a ton of creativity, a ton of individual effort, and a ton of individual attempts to figure it out and to get some of that fluidity into the attack, and so you end up with a very static Manchester United failing to create, and then when they come up against teams that do have a good game plan and that are able to capitalize on Manchester United's vulnerabilities, as Ralph Hasenhutl talked about quite publicly, uh, then they end up giving away that lead and giving up the game and giving up points as well. Uh, Luke Shaw afterwards said, uh, it needs to get better, it needs to get better quickly, and we don't need to overthink it. And to me, that speaks volumes about this team that right now, it seems like every player is overthinking every individual action, which means it's a team short on confidence, and it's a lot of players short on confidence, and right now it's a lot of players and a team short on results. How how do you how do you get out of that? Yeah. I suppose Taylor is the question. Is it's the, not the million dollar question for Man United? Because I suppose they've been trying for years in many ways to get out of that. I mean, if, if we feel like when Ralph Rangnick comes in, oh, here's the solution. He's going to calm things down, and it's no better. 
It's yeah. no better at all. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I have some sympathy, and I, and I don't think this is just my bias because I thought Rognick was going to be a good appointment. I think it's because he's only been there for, what, like two months at this point? And you're asking him to change the entire structure and DNA of a club from the way they were playing, from the philosophy of the previous manager and all of the signings of that manager and the managers before him. You're trying to get all of those people on board to play this new system that requires a ton of work, a ton of training, a ton of diligent effort that maybe some of those players aren't as inclined to go for automatically, but then when you have a manager who might not be there after this summer or won't be there in a managerial capacity, maybe will be there in some sort of advisor role, but you don't quite know. Why do all of this work and do all of these things that this coach is asking to change up your game and to change the way you play it to then potentially have somebody else come in in the summer and say, never mind, disregard all that. And I think they're at a bit of an impasse right now. I also think it's a squad that isn't buying in and maybe doesn't buy into what the coach wants them to do. And there's lots of leaks and the Ted Lasso thing. And to me, it just feels like a team that isn't that motivated and doesn't quite believe in the new manager. I don't really think that's his fault because I think he's been put in a a pretty difficult situation and is doing his best, I think, to navigate it. But if you have players who aren't executing, as he talked about, we could have had four and five goals, but we're not taking our opportunities. I think you could see his frustration there. And I think, if anything, my maybe my fan voice speaking, I think he's doing a really good job to not publicly criticize certain players who maybe aren't doing what's asked. Cough, Marcus Rashford, cough, Jaden Sancho. Uh, <laughs> but I think there's an awareness that if he does that, maybe he torpedoes this whole season and this whole squad right now. They're, they're also very confusing. They continue to be very confusing off the pitch as well. Because I don't know, Taylor, if you've seen the reports from David Ornstein this morning at the Athletics saying that they're going to hire a deputy <sighs> technical director this summer, which is a bit like, obviously, not so long ago, Man United seemingly didn't have a footballing department. Yep. Now, it's a bit like uh, Bruce Bogtrotter in Matilda, where you want a chocolate cake? Well, here's the biggest chocolate cake in the world, and we're going to hire every single technical director around. So we're going to hire John Murtaugh, we're going to give him Darren Fletcher's assistant, we're going to get Ralph Ranick as a consultant, and now we're going to get someone else in at the end of the summer. There's, Just give one of those guys responsibility. There's no calm. I, I think that is the thing that consistently stands out about Manchester United, on the pitch and off the pitch. There's, there's, there's always reaction. Every loss or every time there's a a, a downturn in form it means there's leaks coming out about how the manager doesn't know what he's doing there's leaks about the players aren't doing what the, what's being asked of them there's a new signing there's a new hiring there's a new position it just it, it never feels like yeah we're building towards something we know what we're doing when Liverpool lose a game when City loses a game it's always going to be talked about because it's Liverpool and City losing games but it's never seen as like, well, that's it. Klopp's entire system was wrong. Yep, uh, Pep got it all wrong. This isn't working anymore. And and it feels very much that that's how it goes at Manchester United. That when there's a downturn in form, it's immediate crisis. It's new hirings. It's we're changing it up. We're we're adding this. We're removing this. We're restructuring that. And it just it always feels in a state of upheaval. It's like they're constantly remodeling the house and never fully living in the house because they're always making changes. And then you have a new contractor come in uh, every like six months to 18 months and says, never mind, we got to change it all again. And here we are. Uh, Graham, I've got to push back on um, them not being a, a complete outfit off the field. They did sign Tezos, the blockchain for everyone. Ah, uh, yes. So you, you got to, those commercial deals are still coming through thick and fast, Graham. Of course. And and actually, a few weeks ago, I thought I thought to myself, wow, it's a bit strange that Manchester United of all clubs don't have a blockchain partner. Oh, wait. Yeah, yeah. there we go. There it is. 
It's not just a blockchain for specific people. It's a blockchain for everyone, Graham. That's uh, how they've right. marketed it. And they're not tone deaf in any way mentioned at Messi United Socials or their uh, their uh, marketing department. Wonderful stuff. Um, <laughs> what a what a what a mess. What a Hilarious mess. Um, why don't we talk about Everton? <laughs> Frank Lampard got his first Premier League win, a 3-0 win over Leeds, Taylor. Yeah, and, and, and I want to go back to Man United for a second to draw a contrast with Everton because uh, Carl Anka wrote a really good piece about what's going on with Manchester United. And one of the points at the end of it was that Rangnick feels like Manchester United respond too aggressively when they concede and that they sometimes lose their game plan. You have Pogba and Bruno striding forward and gaps open up and everyone's trying to make something happen because there's this pressure to to get a result, to make something happen, but it ends up being very individual, very much I'm going to do it and not sort of a team focus. And I point that out to then look at Everton under Frank Lampard, especially in this game. There is so much collective fight on and off the ball from Everton that there, uh, Richarlison gives the ball away, chases it down, fights and, and hassles and little pokes, little touches, and then eventually forces a corner. They score from that corner. There's so much effort from an individual standpoint, but also from a unified team standpoint, everybody working, everybody being in the right positions, blocking spaces, blasting, blocking passing lanes. I thought, it was a very impressive performance from Everton, not just because of the scoreline leads can ship goals. We know that can happen, but because it was just a, it was Everton doing to leads what leads ideally want to do to their opponents. And I've really enjoyed at the end of it, uh, Marcelo Bielsa being asked like what he thought of the game, what he thought of the results. And via his translator, he said, they established differences that justified their goals. And I think that's true. Frank Lampard and Everton, <laughs> Uh, established a lot of differences and ended up getting three points and three goals. That sounds like what a robot would say. About it does. It really, really does. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Graham, are we worried about Leeds? They are uh, one, one point from three uh, games and hovering above that relegation zone. Yep. Slightly worried about Leeds, I have to say. I, I, <laughs> I think... Um, their their sort of man to man system means that in in any game where they they don't have the the better of the individual battles they are in trouble and I think that's what happened against Everton and um, the way they're going this season they're going to face a lot of teams that are going to get the better of them in those battles so yeah absolutely if Everton are resurgent Newcastle are resurgent as well Norwich are picking up results which I don't know if not this weekend nope. but in the last few weeks they've picked up some results which I don't know if anyone foresaw that so Leeds could be the odd one out and they're definitely getting sucked into that battle they are indeed a battle that is widening and Norwich still very much in it Graham Raheem Sterling hat-trick helping Man City to stay top of the league with a 4-0 win over Norwich this weekend uh Norwich now four points clear of the uh, safety in the relegation zone uh Taylor what did you make of this one uh, I made of it that Raheem Sterling is good at scoring goals. He gets the hat trick, a great performance from him. I would say really impressive goal from Phil Foden, because when I watched it the first time, I thought it was just sort of, you know, chaos in the box. He ends up getting a toe to it or something like that. It's really impressive. If you watch it in slow-mo, you can see how much like physical training it takes to be a modern footballer, especially one who's not particularly large in size, because Foden is so quick on his feet, so light on his feet, and so flexible. Like, there's definitely some ballet skills to Phil Foden's game in this one because of the way he's able to basically, like, kick the ball but pull it back at the same time while winning the ball but then shooting in the same motion, all, like, while staying on his toes and adjusting to players around him. If you can, go watch that goal because it doesn't seem that impressive when you, like, when you watch it live. When you see the slow-mo and everything he has to do to earn that goal and how skillfully it's done, it's really impressive from Phil Foden. 
Still probably more impressive from Raheem Sterling with the hat trick. Uh, sky is the limit for Phil Foden. So says the giant tattoo on his neck oh, now. No. Oh, boy. What? Bad what? Bad tattoo. Oh, I missed this. Yeah. It runs all the way from like his ear down his neck. It doesn't say the sky's the limit, just sky is the limit. I think maybe yeah, he's BT- talking about the broadcast. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say BT Sport won a word. <laughs> uh, They're going to block it out when they do live broadcasts of Phil Foden when he plays for City. Yeah. going to pixelate it. Wonderful stuff. Well, Man City is still top, as I say. Uh, Norwich losing. Also, Watford and Burnley uh, below them losing as well. Watford losing 2-0 at Brighton. Burnley uh, suffering 1-0 against Liverpool. Newcastle, though, get their third win in a row. 1-0 over Aston Villa. Uh, Newcastle, according to Opta Joe, have won three consecutive Premier League games for the first time since November 2018 under Rafael Benitez. Hope full stop. Uh, nice set piece from Kieran Trippier, the goal scorer here once again for the Geordies. Um, Graham, Eddie Howe's black and white army, colon, no longer doomed, maybe. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I-, I thought it was very typical for Newcastle that Trippier scores that goal. I think his second free kick in as many games in the Premier League for Newcastle and then suffers a pretty serious injury. And it's now expected that he will miss a, a significant period of time. I even saw some suggestions on Twitter this morning that he might even miss the rest of the season, which would be a terrible blow for Newcastle, given that of all the signings that they have made, he is the one that has bedded in the quickest and is make it, making the, the biggest difference, not just as a, on, on the pitch in terms of his, his output, his goals that he's scoring, but it feels like he's a bit of a leader already for that team. So he would, he would be a big loss for them if he is out for the rest of the season. I have to say, slightly surprised that Newcastle are putting it together as they are right now. It feels like a lot of the signings that they have made haven't quite been integrated yet. I don't think Bruno Gomares has started the game yet. He comes off the bench in this one. Chris Wood still feels like he's slightly isolated in this team. So once they get some of those players in, they might actually be even better than they've shown in the last three games. Well, on that note, Graham, a journalist after the game asked Eddie Howe if a top 10 finish was feasible. And I had a chuckle to myself when I saw that. But they're eight points off 10th right now. It's not impossible. Are they? Yeah. Really? Yeah. That is surprising to me. Crazy time. Crazy time. Um, Tottenham conceded two early goals to Wolves and they couldn't find a way back from that one, Graham. Um, Wolves overtook Spurs into seventh place and comedy defending for both goals. Yeah, comedy if you're not a Spurs fan, I would suggest. Uh, <laughs> I, I think this is becoming a bit... Sorry, Graham, I just wanted to add, I think it's generous to even say what Spurs were doing was defending for those two goals. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, indeed. And, and and I think the most depressing thing for, for Spurs is that this is becoming a bit of a pattern. It was very similar to the, the game they played against Southampton during the week, which they, they lost 3-2 at home. And this is a, a difficult moment for them. And much of the criticism has been of the squad quality and how the team isn't quite in tune with Conte. And obviously there is some truth to that. And you look at the squad of some of the, the rivals around Spurs, you know, certainly Chelsea, Liverpool, City, my United, in terms of their squad depth, have a lot more options than Spurs. But I don't think Conte should be completely shielded from the blame. And I, I, it confuses me why he went for the same approach in this game that he did against Southampton, even down to the the shape uh, and the players in the, in the back line. And, and, and basically, Wolves just did exactly what Southampton did. And they stopped Spurs playing out from the back with uh, Davis and Sanchez on either side of the back three. The midfield was pretty much overwhelmed with a midfield two. And then Conte makes the... The change with Kulisevsky coming on for Sessegnon after 28 minutes to try and bolster that midfield. But by that time, it's already too late. They're 2-0 down. So I think Conte does deserve some of the blame as well. His stubbornness, I don't think, is helping Spurs at the moment. And he has a lot of questions to, to answer right now. 
Yeah. Conte standing in the rain frowning is going to be the image of this season for Tottenham, I think. Um, Taylor, I did enjoy Jonathan Wilson's Guardian match report. He said, Bruno Lage's Wolves can have a pleasantly soporific quality like fish in a tank. You start watching the patterns and before you know it, five or six minutes have gone and nothing has happened. <laughs> um, which I, I just enjoy the idea of someone <laughs> analysing the patterns of fish moving around in a tank more than anything. But uh, I don't know if you, what you made of this game, Taylor. I mean, that that is really, really well said by Jonathan Wilson because I think it's it's a good explainer for Wolves because they do so many things so well. It doesn't always lead to goals necessarily or to a ton happening, but I think they execute their game plan pretty successfully, pretty consistently under Laga. And and so to see this game, especially after having watched Manchester United, to see what unified pressing looks like and how difficult it can be to play through when it's done effectively, and especially when it's done against a Spurs team that didn't have some of the quote-unquote key players for Antonio Conte. When you're, I guess, when you're rotating, they tend to have a downturn in form, do Spurs, and when you're Wolves and you are aggressive in stepping and making them uncomfortable i think it really plays uh into what wolves want to do and in this game that's exactly how they win uh how they get both goals but and i think also shatter Hugo Lloris's co- uh, confidence at the same time because mm. the back pass was not great that leads to i believe the second goal his save and then terrible punch clear like straight to raul jimenez also <laughs> not particularly good and i think for antonio conte there is probably frustration in that there were individual mistakes and team mistakes, and I think you would prefer it be one or the other and not both. Did Did anyone catch Conte's post match post match comments yeah. where he he basically said, "I'm not used to challenging for fourth mm-hmm. place rather than for titles," and I was like, "What club did you think you were joining? <laughs> like that, that is the aim at Tottenham. So I, I don't mean to be disrespectful to Tottenham, but that is the target for Tottenham, and they have a bit of a ceiling. So that's slightly concerning that maybe he he doesn't fully have a grasp of the situation that he's in. If, right if now. you if you pause for a moment there, Graham, like what is the purpose of saying that i'm not saying that from a critical standpoint i mean literally like or do you say that because you're saying this is new territory for me like i think that's probably what he would spin it as but in reality the only way i really hear that in the moment is i am better than this i am frustrated that my players aren't doing what they need to do to play to the level that i expect them to play to like to me that does seem like a veiled shot at his players it's it's Mourinho esque, yeah, isn't exactly, it? and, yeah. and that's that's kind of the elephant in the room with Conte at the moment is a lot of what he's doing and saying is pretty much exactly what Mourinho did as Spurs manager, but obviously Spurs fans are willing to give him a little bit more leeway because unlike Mourinho who hadn't won anything in a long time, Spurs are still clinging on to this idea. Well, Conte is a it was a winner last season. He's one of the best right now, so he must know what he's doing. But in terms of what he's doing so far at Spurs right now, it's. I, I don't know. It's maybe not that impressive I mean, so far. I think of, about a key player under Antonio Conte, and it's Eric Dyer and how critical he's become. And I think back to Jose Mourinho, and Eric Dyer is one of those players that he yeah. really, really puts a lot of faith into. I think you're right, Graham. I think there are some strong parallels there. Maybe the only difference would be that Mourinho absolutely would have thrown in some actual names and blamed some people for not yeah. doing what was needed. Then they made him sad, whereas Antonio Conte was just sad about the situation. See, I read it as a cell phone because he's saying, I'm not used to competing for fourth place. You are literally the one person who could do something about that. That's what you're here for. <laughs> well, that's what it, but that's what I mean, though, is that to say it that way, 
the, and and for it not to then be like, but you know, I got to take the lead. I got to make this happen because I don't want to be. I don't want to be here. I'm not comfortable with this. That's why I wonder, like, what's the point in saying that? And I agree with Graham. The only reason to say something like that is because you're basically saying like this isn't good enough for my standards. Like maybe you all are okay with this. I am not okay. Like it feels very much like he is differentiating himself from this team right now. And I'm making it a bigger deal. It's not that big of a deal, but it it just stood out to me as an odd thing because I think a lot of people took it as like, oh, Spurs aren't going to challenge for the top four. Oh, Antonio Conte said he's sad about that situation. And oh, poor Antonio Conte in the rain. That seems to have been the way it's gone. And less so... Like, if to your point, Graham, if that were Jose Mourinho, I think there'd be a lot more like, oh, it's happening. He's losing the dressing room. I don't think Conte is, but I think those are the kind of margins when it comes to high-profile managers. Maybe we are seeing the beginning of the conscious uncoupling, oh boy. unfurling before oh boy. us. Uh, one other Premier League game to note, uh, Leicester 2, West Ham 2. Notable because Kurt Zuma pulled out of the game just after the warm-up, citing sickness. Uh, he was heavily booed by Leicester's fans uh, during that warm-up. Uh, he's being investigated, of course, for a video of him abusing his pet cat. He's already been fined 250 grand sterling for it. Um, yeah, so we'll leave that one there. Liga, La Liga. Real Madrid stay top of the league despite a goalish draw at Villarreal, uh, which Graham perhaps bodes well for Villarreal, who hosts Juventus in the Champions League in a couple of weeks, that they were able to do such a thing to Real Madrid. Yes, but I would also say it's a case study in what Real Madrid are like when Karim Benzema and Luka Modric don't start. Um, it wasn't it wasn't a terrible performance by Real Madrid, but they just didn't have that cutting edge. And I thought it was quite telling that Vinicius Junior he just he wasn't able to conjure up something on his own. And I think without Benzema to bounce off and to take some of the defensive attention from him, he he struggled a little bit. He was he was roughed up a bit. In fairness, I, I have no idea. I don't know if either of you saw this, but. I've no idea how Raul Albiol avoided a red card for essentially elbowing Vinicius in the face off the ball. It was, I think, the worst refereeing decision of the weekend. It was quite incredible. But um, I don't know how much we learned about Real Madrid, given that they were missing two of their key players. Modric does come off the bench in the second half, I should mention. But by that time, it was it was quite a difficult game for them to break break down. Did a certain Welshman resurface, Graham? Hmm. He did. Uh, Gareth Bale is alive, apparently. Ooh. alive and Well, I was going to say alive and well. Kind of well. Um, for the first time in August. Since August, I should say, he was involved for Real Madrid. They had to drag him in off the golf course to start up front in place of Karim Benzema. And look, Pete Gareth Bale, is he's gone. He's never coming back. But I thought this performance sort of showed that he still has something to offer. He was the only one who was really running at Villarreal. He made some good runs. There was some decent decent movement. Yes, okay, he doesn't score a goal. There was there was a lack of kind of attacking output, but it does still feel like a waste that Real Madrid are just letting him see out his contract on the bench or even in the stands. He's been lucky to get on the bench this season, so um, I guess it was welcome to see him, even if it was in a slightly strange position. Yeah, I guess he doesn't care either way, Graham. <laughs> he's still no. getting, he's playing his contract out. Whatevs. Um, Sevilla stayed in second place on Friday night with a 2-0 win over Elche. Taylor, there was drama at the Wondanara Stadium, as I love to call it, in the in the Madrid derby. Atleti were 3-2 down to Hetafe. They came back to win 4-3. An 89th minute winner from Mario Amaso getting uh, getting uh, Madrid uh, Atletico Madrid the points there. A red card for Felipe as well. Oh my goodness. <laughs> quite quite an event, huh? Uh, yeah. Felipe, uh, have you all seen that clip? Have you seen that red card? <laughs> it's quite, 
violent. It is it is one of the worst red cards I've seen, like like live, certainly, but maybe ever. Like he he tries to murder somebody, and I can't believe <laughs> he, he's going to be allowed to play football anytime soon. I'm guessing he will get a lengthy suspension for that one. It's like a it's a kung fu kick to the chest, and it stops a, a counterattack breakaway potential. It's really strange because it doesn't come. From anything in the sense that I assumed there was like like he had gotten punched in the face a moment before and was like, well, someone's going to pay for that. But nope, it was just Felipe doing Felipe things. Atleti not having a lot of center back depth. I think there were, there were positive COVID tests that limited them further. So they basically only had Jimenez as their usual center back starter. And it showed. And it really, really paints an interesting picture for the game to come. Because that game versus Manchester United... I, I have no idea what to expect from it. There could be, <laughs> it could be 4-4 after the first leg. It could be nil-nil. It could be 4-0 Atleti. I don't think it would be 4-0 Man United. I think there will be cards. I think it's going to be sloppy. I think it will be chaos. If Atleti go back to their usual defensive approach, which they thus far have been avoiding, I think they end up winning. But overall, I'm predicting chaos. Excellent. That's the team I root for. Um, we had a Madrid derby. We also had a Barcelona derby this weekend. Espanyol 2, Barcelona 2. Uh, Luke de Jong rescuing a point for Barcelona at the death. Uh, Taylor, some red cards in this one. Three red cards at the end as well. Ooh, yeah, a, a dramatic game. Uh, and But, a, but a, a fun game in the sense that you want your derbies to be pretty electric and a, a late equalizer for Barcelona is that Luke de Jong proving to be the hero. We all saw this coming. Adama Traore proving to have excellent service. I'm pretty sure we all saw that coming as well. I really enjoy <laughs> Luke de Jong being a critical part of this Barcelona team because they just so didn't want him to be and he will not go away and he keeps doing things. Credit to Luke de Jong, credit to Adama Traore who I thought was excellent and did not celebrate at all when Barca equalized. <laughs> I don't know if that's because he doesn't like Luke de Jong or he wanted the win and didn't think the team had played that well. Either way, I think a spirited fight back from Barca and a limited Barcelona at that with a lot of injuries uh, and with the red cards you mentioned there, Ryan. So I think this was still a, a good enough result, albeit two points dropped. Uh, Graham, to paraphrase a famous American author, are rumors of Barcelona's revival greatly exaggerated? Uh, slightly exaggerated, as I would say. I I expected this match was gonna was gonna be a good one. I think Esp- Espanyol obviously they're they're not exactly flying high in the Liga, but they are a team that they do have quality. Obviously, Raúl de Thomas gets a, a goal in this one. I think he's one of the best strikers in La Liga and has been for a while. Obviously, Espanyol last season weren't in La Liga, but they managed to keep hold of him. Sergi Dardar as well at the strike that he's the goal that he scores is an, a, a brilliant strike. He seems to turn it on all the time when the when it's the the big teams or the big occasions. So. That wasn't terribly terribly surprising that he was good in this game as well. But Barcelona are a bit weird to work out at the moment. There's a strange thing going on in football this season when so a lot of the technical-minded teams seem to be putting the ball into the box a lot. We've spoken about this earlier in the season with Man City. There was a match they played against Southampton where they, they played 45 crosses uh, in a game. I think when City played PSG away in the Champions League, they had 38 crosses as well. Barca put in 33 crosses in this game, and particularly after they fell 2-1 behind, it felt like it was just cross after cross after cross. And that is kind of in contrast to maybe what we expected from Barcelona under Xavi. Obviously, he wants to take Barca back to their traditional roots of tiki-taka and possession-based football, and that that is there. But they, they do put a lot of crosses into the box, and that is... 
That's perfect for Luke de Jong, who is basically uh, Barca's Chris Wood. That is the role that he is playing for FC Barcelona. And I'm and I'm here for it because also it reminds everyone of Ronald Koeman as well, because Koeman <laughs> was the only guy at that club who wanted Luke de Jong. And so it's quite funny that he's turning into a key player for them. Barca's Chris Wood is the very definition of damning with faint praise, Graham, I think. <laughs> it is indeed. It was deliberate. <laughs> uh, let's quickly go to the Bundesliga. We had a big, big upset with VfL Bochum beating Bayern Munich 4-2. All four of Bar- uh, Bayern's conceded goals coming in the first half after Robert Lewandowski had given them the lead. Bochum were promoted this year. They're a new team in the Bundesliga. How unfortunate for Bayern, Graham. <laughs> Very good. Thanks. Very good. Uh, yeah, want to talk about this one? It was. Um... Sorry, I didn't realise you were setting me up there. I thought it was just you wanted to get your pun in. I thought that that's really. You, you both are just here as vehicles for my puns, of course. But uh, <laughs> the, I, I think what was outstanding, Graham, was at least a couple of Bochum's goals in this one. Uh, Christian, Christian Gamboa yep. with an incredible shot across goal for the third one. And the fourth one from Garrett Holtman was this wonderful curling effort. If you're going to lose, lose to goals like that. Absolutely. Gamboa, by the way, who played in Scotland, he never did that when he was here. <laughs> I didn't know that he could pull that one off. He kind of arrows a, a right-footed shot into the, the far corner from just inside the box. A, a fantastic strike. But I do think there has been a bit of a a change in the tide, I would say, in the German media around this Bayern Munich team since since this result. Um, we've spoken about Bayern Munich a lot on this podcast. They are a very good team. We've certainly talked about them as an attacking unit, and I'm not sure there's a better attacking side anywhere in Europe right now. They've scored 70 goals in 22 league games, which is quite frankly ridiculous. But I think as a defensive unit, there are some question marks. And as I say, Saturday was a little bit of a watershed for how a lot of people think about Bayern Munich. Until now, they have lost a few games in the Bundesliga, but I and many others kind of thought of them as as blips. They tended to come when there was injuries or just after international breaks and maybe their focus had been shaken. But they've now been blown out of four games in the Bundesliga this season against teams they should have beaten. beaten. So Eintracht Frankfurt, Augsburg, Gladbach and now Bochum. And as, as, as you say there, Ryan, there's a couple of great goals in this match that maybe Bayern Munich can't legislate for. But their, their high line gave them a lot of trouble. And, and, and Bochum, um, they exploited that, particularly for, for the equaliser, where I think it's Holtman gets up the left side, puts the cross in for the, into the middle. I thought Upe Meccano, this was his first start of 2022. He was shaky, very shaky throughout. He's caught a lot of criticism in the German press. Didi Hamann wrote a column, I think, for Sport Build saying it's time that he really shows that he's Bayern Munich's main man in defence, which is what they signed him to be. They signed him to be the kind of Boateng slash Alaba replacement. And he was kind of a bit all over the place here. He didn't ever look in control of the situation. He was doing a lot of chasing, which I think is never a good sign for a central defender. I I always feel like uh, Harry Maguire does a lot of chasing, and that is never a good sign for him either. And Bochum just unsettled him in every way they could, and they unsettled Bayern in defence a lot in this game. And uh, Joshua Kimmich comes out after the match, and, and he says, quote, it's happening too often now. I I didn't see anything like this at FC Bayern before, which kind of suggests that Bayern maybe aren't as untouchable as we all, myself included, have maybe talked them up to be recently. So I, I do think that defence is, is a real yeah. weak, can be, I should say can be, it isn't every match, but it can be a real weakness for them. And, and that certainly was the case. Graham, here. I saw a, a Bayern poll, I think it was on Reddit, about like, who, what do you blame for this game? What went wrong? And the answer for who gets the blame was David Alaba for leaving. 
because it it is that back line looking really vulnerable. And I think oftentimes what we have sort of fallen into is praising the attack. And because the attack is so potent, is so consistently good, I think they're able to sort of make that difference. Because if Byron are up 3-0, the teams can attack, but they know they're going to get counterattacks upon. They know there's still that, that potent attack for uh, Byron to deal with. So I think... To some extent, the attack covers for the defense. In this game, all of the the sort of advanced three, not Robert Lewandowski, who still gets a brace in an, an, an unimpressive performance for Bayern Munich, still an impressive performance from him, but Canabri, Canabri uh, uh, Sané, and Muller, excuse me, uh, all, I think, having off games. And when you have all three of them not playing particularly well, that means you're giving the ball away. That means you're not being as tight in possession, as threatening as, you know, give us five seconds of space, we'll end up scoring a goal. If you're not kind of connecting those dots, it means that Bochum can get that confidence and can go at that defense, which is pretty shaky, isn't particularly reliable or consistent, and ends up getting the result. Wow. Maybe Bayern will wait till April or May to win it yeah. this year. You never Who know. Say? <laughs> you never know. Um, well, the, uh, with Bayern losing on the Saturday, the stage was set for Borussia Dortmund to lose as well on Sunday and keep the gap as it was. But they I didn't. definitely thought that was happening. Yep. Everyone thought that was happening, Graham. It didn't happen, though. They closed the gap to six points now at the top of the Bundesliga. Dortmund getting a 3-0 win at Union Berlin. Marco Royce getting a brace. And Rafa Guerrero, Guerrero excuse me, getting the third goal. Uh, by Leverkusen, they're still in the chasing pack as well. They're in third with a four. Two home win over Stuttgart. Ricardo Pepe made a half-hour cameo in Augsburg's 3-2 loss at Gladbach. Augsburg remaining in the relegation zone. One win in their last eight games. Her boy. And Ebi Leipzig are in fourth after a 3-1 win over Cologne on Friday. Just a couple other games I wanted to draw attention to before we close this pod out, gents. Uh, Paris Saint-Germain still 13 points clear in Liga with a 1-0 win over Rennes on Friday night. It was Kylian Mbappe who rescued the three points, so it was the 90th minute he got the winner there. And Ajax, okay, they are five points clear at Eredivisie. They got another 5-0 win this weekend over Twente. Um, they are killing it this year, as um, as our friend Joe Larry let us know in our Champions League preview earlier this week. Uh, some numbers for you, Graham. This is their ninth 5-0 win of the season. They are plus 64 in goal difference. They've only conceded nine goals in all competitions this season. Uh, I'll read you their most recent results. They've won every game in the past two months. 5 0-5-0, 3-0, 2-1, 9-0, 3-0, 5-0, 2-0, 4-0. Their only goal they've conceded there was against PSV in the last two months. I mean, that's not bad. It's not a, it's not a bad record, I suppose. No, they, they are... Uh... They are an incredible team this season. Uh, I'm really excited to see what they do in the Champions League. I have to say, with all the kind of off-field stuff around Ajax at the moment, and the reports seem to have shifted onto the culture in general at Ajax, which seems to have permitted, according to the reports, um, seems to have permitted a lot of the inappropriate behaviour. And obviously, we had Mark Overmars leaving as the as a director of football. I have to say that sort of thing has kind of um, tainted it for me a little bit. I I would be fully on the Ajax train if it wasn't for that, but. In terms of their footballing quality, there's no doubt about their footballing quality. And I, I think with a good draw, they actually could be real contenders to go a long way in the Champions League this season. Yes, I think I dismissed them far too much in the uh, Champions League um, preview poll, which you haven't listened to, by the way. It's in the feed. Go check it out. It's very good, if I don't say so myself. Uh, Benfica coming up, as you say, Graham. Um, they will be quoting Ralph Wiggum. I'm in danger when they face Ajax, <laughs> I think, uh, for this one. Uh, one other one, speaking uh, of Portugal, the Portuguese Primera, 
Uh, we had Porto 2, Sporting, Lisbon 2 on Friday night. Uh, Sporting were the visitors in this one. They went 2-0 up after 34 minutes. Porto brought it back. Um, Porto uh, still maintain a six-point lead at the top, but Taylor, the story wasn't what happened during the game, but perhaps after it. Uh, it's one of those clips that's uh, it's been circulating, Taylor, oh. where you get the essence of the game without watching any of the game. There's a brawl involving apparently up to 40 players and coaches on the field, five red cards given out after the game, and of course, our man Pepe at the heart of the action. He was, and I thought it was going to be exaggerated, because I think, it for, I think what starts the conflict is a challenge on Pepe, and I think he says he gets kicked in the head. I think sporting fans would say that the ball w- was there was contact with the ball first, then there's contact. Either way, yeah, Pepe involved in the beginning, and I thought like, oh, they're just overstating it because it's Pepe, and then he comes wading back in and gets himself a red card in the end. Seems to get into <laughs> it with a coach or a couple different coaches. I think some players got into it with stewards. It seems like like members of the press were on the far side, and they like I, th- I saw a sporting player throw a fake punch at one point and all of the press people on that far side responded accordingly uh it it was a weird game there was chaos all over the field it wasn't a full brawl because i didn't see a ton of punches i just saw a lot of shoving and sneaky like slaps and hits and things like that but yeah a, a wild ending lots of red cards this weekend lots of crazy moments this weekend yeah yeah, lots of multiple red cards yeah. simultaneously. Uh, even the Porto ball boy at one point took a, a <laughs> swipe, but it was um, it was like Bruno Fernandes style miss ah. on on his on his punch on that there we one go. though. Uh, Sporting playing Man City at home on Wednesday. All right, I think that just about rounds up our weekend. Graham, anything more you want to say before we put down the megaphone of soccer? No, I just, I just thought the Pepe thing was really funny because I started off watching the clip going, oh, he's he's not involved in this 40-person <laughs> brawl. He's maturing at 38 years. Oh, wait, no, nope. no, no. He's right in the middle of it. Oh, and he's been sent off as well. Okay. And my the, the thought that popped into my head as well watching all that was, ah, we've got to get Pepe into an old firm derby oh, somehow. <laughs> that has to happen. That's a bucket list thing. Graham, if there's a fight on the field and Pepe's in the game, he is the one holding the matches and the gasoline. That is the law yeah. of the game. I think we'll you indeed, will indeed, indeed. Uh, Graham, thank you so much for your contributions on this wonderful weekend review. Thank you, Ryan Bailey. Taylor Rockwell, thank you very much, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you. And listener, thanks for joining us this long. We'll be back on the feed very soon. But for now, bye. bye. Oh, harmony. <laughs> As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. 
See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.